Greetings, friends. This is Benjamin Weiss of Susquehanna Permaculture. You've probably heard me interviewed in the past on Scott's show. Our conversations have focused mostly on the topic of rewilding and where that intersects with permaculture. Now I'm very excited to let you know that Scott has welcomed me to produce a series of guest episodes for the podcast entitled Rewilding Notes. These episodes will focus on my own process of coming to know, a phrase that I borrow from Gregory Cajete's incredible book, Native Science. In these episodes, you'll hear brief interviews with many of my friends, mentors, and colleagues, and you'll also hear report-ins on rewilding projects from here in central Pennsylvania, where I live, and from around the country, and hopefully also around the world. I look forward to sharing my experiences with you on Scott Mann's The Permaculture Podcast. This is The Permaculture Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Mann. And you're listening to episode 1627, Community Building and the Gift. As with Benjamin Weiss's opening announcement, I'm opening the podcast to a series of guest-hosted episodes. Today, that guest host is David Bilbrey, someone I've been speaking with for years about sitting down and recording some podcasts of his own. And he takes over the role as host to record an interview with Eric Chisler, one of the former members of the community at Seppi's Place. Eric devotes his energy on emerging systems and the stories of communities, cooperatives, and alternative economics. Through our time together, I always enjoyed the deep, heady conversations we had about all of these subjects, as well as the lighter ones, such as heavy metal music or Western martial arts. During our many discussions, he also introduced me to many of the thinkers and theorists you'll hear mentioned today, just as I exposed him to many of the ideas and thought leaders of permaculture. You'll find links in the resource section of the show notes to many of the folks who Eric mentions today. And as we move into the interview, our sponsor of the day is The Good Seed Company. With over 40 years of experience raising open-pollinated non-GMO seeds, you can trust that their seeds for common use are just what your garden needs for today, tomorrow, and generations to come. Find out more about their story or shop the online catalog at goodseedco.net. Also be sure to visit our other sponsors, Permi Kids, The Fifth World, and Your Garden Solution. Now then, now then, on to Eric and David. I'll join you again afterwards. Hi, Eric. David Bilbrey. Thanks for coming on the Permaculture Podcast today. Thanks for inviting me. It's, um, it's a real pleasure in many different ways. Yeah, good. Well, I really enjoyed our conversation the other day. Well, uh, just a way of introduction, this is David Bilbrey with EcoThinkIt.com, and this is the beginning of a series on the application of permaculture ethics and principles to social and economic structures. Today, I have Eric Chisler with me. Eric is a cultural inquisitor and sociopolitical critic immersed in a philosophical journey to the heart of human nature. And from your GoFundMe campaign in 2014, I liked some of the, the beginning of what you said there as well. You said, for the last three years, I spent my time divorcing myself from the systems of control and domination that are at the core of our culture, our society, and its institutions. This was, in large part, an effort to create a just society in the only way that seemed possible to me, non-participation in those systems wherever they touched. But to a larger and much less understood degree, it was about learning not to participate with something even more insidious inside of myself. The beliefs, conditioning, and habituation that came from the unavoidable influences of these systems and the culture they create. I'd like to talk about your thoughts and experiences regarding this, but first, why don't you give us a short biography of your awakening regarding permaculture and whole systems thinking? Well, I, I guess in regards to whole systems thinking, it, it's it's been a gradual journey to understanding more and more that our field of awareness is conditioned by how how much we think the world that we're interacting with is in integrated with itself. And I guess that's come through my own experience of life and noticing my own habits and patterns that I get, I get stuck in and then kind of recognizing how that has a multiplicative effect when it, when it moves to a cultural scale. So that came about for me largely through examinations of governmental uh, systems and particularly my desire to learn more about anarchism and methodologies for uh, breaking the ties that bind those systems together. So when I found permaculture, I guess permaculture kind of came on the tail end of my journey into all of these things as a agricultural element to all the things that I've been thinking of, particularly anarchistic methods of negotiating social reality. And I guess the way I view permaculture is 
a, a way to begin thinking from the mindset that we have, which is a very linear and acquisitive mindset that tries to break things down into information systems, which we can glean things from for our own benefit and use that language and that method of thinking to kind of inculcate a, a very different way of thinking through the practice of observing the environment before daring to interact with it and submitting our designs to the wisdom of those observations and the intelligence imbued in the, the non-human world that we tend not to recognize when we move into agricultural spheres of thought. So uh, how did you first hear about permaculture? Well, I first heard about permaculture probably six years ago when I was going to school and uh, in my endeavor to find something that looked like anarchism. I was, I was in student government and getting pretty embroiled in politics as it stands today. And the only place that I could find people that felt anything like me was in a little sustainability club on my campus. And as I found myself more and more drawn to sustainability as a modern anarchist model, I generally became exposed to ideas around permaculture and that was kind of pervasive at workshops and conferences that I was going to. So I started to pick up bits and pieces of it, but I don't think I really encountered it until I came uh, to where I'm at now, which is Seppi's Place, which is, I guess, a permacultural experiment and gift economy household in Pennsylvania, Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, and began interacting with people who are immersed in the permacultural worldview, Scott Mann and Seppi Garrett and uh, Benjamin Weiss and Alexis Campbell, and, you know, began engaging Seppi's Backyard, which is a permacultural experiment that's been going on for, I think, somewhere between five and seven years. So seeing how, how those systems were integrated and just noticing little things as I, as I observe his garden. So that was my first real encounter with permaculture as a, as a way of putting language to what I already kind of assumed about, about how agriculture could be, or rather how our relationship with the non-human world could be and still receive sustenance from those relationships without dominating them. So um, you've been in a couple of different communities, um, looks like mostly on the West Coast. Can you talk a little bit about what those were like and what you learned from those experiences? Sure. Well, I guess my first immersion in community was in Chico, California, where I call home. And uh, although I didn't live at the, the local community, I, I found my network to be pretty deeply embedded in uh, a couple of local organic farming projects and intentional communities that went by the name of Grub, which was Growing Resourcefully Uniting Bellies. And there was a spirit of intention around the way that they interacted with their environment and interacted with each other. And I started picking up on that and really started desiring to have something similar show up in my own life. And that, I think, culminated in um, a trip to Portland. I was at going to the Economics of Happiness conference in Portland, and I got invited by a friend to a, a community that had just started in South Central Washington, and uh, it, was, it was called Camp Singing Wind. And I went and visited and ended up getting invited to join the experiment there, and it was, it was, a, it was a huge challenge and a huge gift. And I think that's really when I started understanding that community is not a theory. It's not an abstraction that we can really put into, into like convenient social brackets of philosophy and, and you know, methodology. It's, um, it's a living entity. It's a set of relationships that are very discreet and unique to the people who are there. And you have to show up in a, in a way personally that, that calls a lot more out of you than your best theories and your best practices can provide. To meet that challenge. So in my time there, I, I learned probably more, more than I learned about community, or perhaps I should say, in as much that I learned about community, I learned a lot about myself and about the way that I interact and found that the truth of what community is lied in the conversation that we were having on a consistent basis, both through the rituals that we practice by being together and acting together in particular ways, and, and through the language that we built in having um, a continuous attempt to meet one another and, and find a common space where um, we could all feel like our, our needs were met, our voices were heard, 
and something larger than ourselves was present. Do you have any examples of uh, interactions that happened in that in that space? Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, most most of my most of my interactions, like the ones that come to mind most vividly, were were had around the table when we were when we were having our weekly meetings, and the fact that there was always present uh, an element of an element of power dynamics. No matter how hard everybody tried to show up in the most equitable way that we all carried, we all carried with us these kind of power imbalances. So there, there were people who owned the land there and they were, they were kind and gracious people, but it always came into the conversation. So I think one of the final conversations I was having there was expressing a need to have a particular kind of space be present for um, research and um, the building of a library in the, in the main cabin that we, that we all shared, the main lodge. And some of the, the folks who owned the place weren't ready for that idea yet, wanted to wait a while before changing things from the way they were. And I could feel in the room and, and see in the faces of other people that they were unwilling to, to challenge that because of the power dynamics that were present. And I had to face my own anger and disappointment and grief that, that showed up when, when, when that disappointment really hit home. And I saw that it was a struggle not of necessarily finding some sort of ground where we could all have our needs met, but a struggle of old stories of what power means, why things should happen, how they should happen, who has a say, and all of the things that I've been struggling about for a long time became very alive. And I realized, too, that most of my search for uh, a different way of relating came from my own wounds about having been related to in these ways throughout my life and that they were more emotionally held than I was willing to admit. And, and that, was, uh, that was the beginning of a much bigger journey that brought me here to Seppi's place and has developed more since I've been here. That's interesting. You talk about those dynamics because of the power of some people were owners and some weren't. How could you structure a community in a way that doesn't have that power structure? Well, I want to go two different directions with that. And, and one direction is not trying to idealize or overlook the pain that lies in the fact that we live in a very particular time with a very particular set of relationships that we're embedded in. Private property is something that exists in this time. And not only does private property exist as a legal construct that asks certain things of us, but private property is imbued in the way that we speak to each other and the way that we relate in such a deep way that even those of us that intend most vigorously not to participate in those modes of thinking and ways of being are held into them by forces that are largely beyond our control cultural forces that have been in play uh, a lot longer than we've been alive. So recognizing that and not trying to avoid the grief and suffering that come from the fact of the matter of where we're at. So on, that's on one side. On another side, making the most of the way things presently are. The way I could conceive of it is that there would need to be some sort of land trust in place that encapsulated um, a larger vision and a, and, a, and a larger set of relationships than the individual relationships could manipulate. So there would essentially need to be a, a, a living entity, which in legal terms could be a land trust, that held the spirit of the project and continuity and honor to the land um, that may not be able to be facilitated by individual humans as they struggle to relate with one another. Have you seen exa living examples of that? Personally, I, I have not. I've only only had a, a few experiences with uh, with communities, so that that hasn't been something I've encountered yet. Right, it's something that I'm wanting to see on the ground as well. I've seen some examples through video and um, what Rob Hopkins is doing with the. Uh, Transition Towns movement is a really great step in that direction. I'd like to go back to just real quick for a second to what you said about grief. I've been finding it's a really interesting process as I've become aware of permaculture and then gone deeper with this knowledge. And at the same time, observed my, as you said in your, your uh, bio thing from GoFundMe, realizing my own, how deeply ingrained 
these systems and ways of thinking are, even though I'm aware of this better way of living. And I've realized it is, it is a grieving process. It's a grieving of what was lost that you never had, if you will. It's like, (laughs) there's this way of living that we're supposed to have had and been living in all along. And it's been stolen from us by these systems. And so how do you process just that grief of that loss and then move forward into creating, to use Charles Eisenstein's uh, title, the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible? Well, even like two words that came up in what you just said, I, I wanted to like pull out and take as, as points of the matter. Better and supposed to be. Those two words, they're very particular to our culture. They're very particular to this culture of abstraction and acquisition and progress and growth that we currently have. And I think what they're actually suggestive of is that grief. They're suggestive of the fact that it's too hard to be where we are. It hurts too much to be present with the feelings that come with noticing the exact set of relationships and particularly destructive relationships that we find ourselves embedded in. And especially with our within ourselves and with the people that that are around us and with the natural world. So, like pulling those out, I notice how often in a day they'll come up in conversation. This is the good way to do things. Everything would be better if this is the way things were supposed to be. I, I mean, it's even in the the way that we we handle death and dying in this culture. You know, they weren't supposed to go. It wasn't their time. Like, we are completely immersed in this way of thinking that thinks that we can dodge the boundaries and limitations of nature. And you could say that this is the, this is the source of the agricultural revolution, the attempt to, to go beyond the boundaries of our natural environment and try to secure for ourselves something that looks like the end of our anxiety of ending. So I think, you know, one of the first things to notice is the reluctance to let things end and the reluctance to have things be the way that they are and starting with how that shows up in you, how that feels and being able to start bringing into focus every time you make a decision, every time you have an an anxious feeling, every time you're going through something that's very difficult, asking how is that present right now? How am I trying to not be where I'm at? And what grief wants to be expressed instead of me restricting the possibility that this is the way things are. Being present, that, that's a theme that's come up a lot in my life in the last couple of years and uh, realizing how not present we can be in our daily life and moment-to-moment life. And just for me personally, the realization that that's the only moment that matters. If we're not living fully right now, then... We're either living in the past or hoping for the future. And so is that something that's come naturally to you or how have you come to um, be a practitioner of living in the present moment? Naturally. Oh, I, I don't think it's come naturally at all. I mean, I'm, um, I mean, I can probably be, be noted by the way that I talk. I tend to be a very heady person. Um, I've spent a lot of my life in my head and I remember being a kid and, and being drawn to to fiction really early and spending my days in the library, um, either reading stories or reading encyclopedias. And both of them were ways to not be present. Instead of how do I know the world by interacting with it? How do I know the world by consuming information about it? And instead of seeing the story of my life, how do I appreciate stories that aren't present with me right now? So I would say that I've actually been pretty far from being present for most of my life. There's a, a teacher, a teacher of mine, his name's Stephen Jenkinson, and, and one, of his, one of his quotes, and I may butcher it, but I'll, I'll do my best with it, is that in troubled times like these, the sound of awakening is a sob. And um, I find that to be really true. What got me to really attend to being present was heartbreak and grief. It was actually, you know, going on this journey around the country, trying to divorce myself from those things that you mentioned, the the elements of culture that reside inside of me that ask of me to dominate the world around me, ask of me to dominate myself and the systems that I'm embedded in, that finding that attempt to escape futile 
was probably the beginning of my awakening to the need to be present. Because once I realized that there was no escape, there was only essentially two options. That was the, the only sure escape, which is not being here at all, or really investing myself in what it took to be here. And what I found um, it took to be here was a lot of willingness to sit with the pain and the grief that comes with these times that we find ourselves in. And funny enough, I think possibly my most, my most meditative times or my most, for lack of a better term, growth-filled moments are, are those moments when I become so overwhelmed with either the prospects of my own disconnection with myself through anxiety, desire, any of these things, or through the state of the world that I find myself in and the relationships that it forces me to, to engage in really sitting with the intensity of those emotions has been a, a huge practice for, for learning how to be present with me and learning to admit that the world is the way that it is. And as much as I, I may have visions of a better world, as much as there may be this sense, like Charles Eisenstein says, that, that a more beautiful world is possible, the more beautiful world isn't here. And, and yet it is. It's here in the fact that it's not. It's here in the fact that I'm present in the midst of what is present and that that's all that I have at this very moment. And utilizing that expression of grief to move into the world with a more embodied sense of being here and having this chance and noticing with a great burden of responsibility that my life is of consequence and both that that means that I'm desperately needed and that in that need, I have a responsibility to ensure that the consequences of my life meet the entire web of needs that I'm surrounded by. You know, that really brings you, brings you into the moment that you're in, or at least it has for me. It's amazing how quickly it gets personal, right? We're talking about transformation of economic and social systems and creating a better world etc and you realized as i have my god i'm i'm the problem the the disease is in me <laughs> yeah. unless, unless i deal with this the rest of it's even if it does change it's not going to change enough for me uh so it really does get down to personal transformation and uh finding language to walk between Again, Charles Eisenstein coins these phrases so well, the space between stories. Just that coining of that phrase made me feel understood and more comfortable. Like, oh, I really am in a space, a different space than I've ever been in before. And we as a human race are in a different space than ever before. I mean, just incredibly rapid change and frightening you know, realities and beautiful visions and beautiful projects and experiments that people are doing. I mean, it's all happening at the same time. It's a, it's a really fascinating time to be alive. And uh, that helps me from uh, to get over the terror of the things that are dangerous and, and threatening in this world. So, you know, honestly, I don't know a whole lot about um, anarchism. So let's step back a little bit. You said you were an anarchist and then something in permaculture resonated with you. Can you talk a little bit, just what, what is an anarchist and what was it that drew you to that? So uh, anarchism for me, it came from, uh, it came from trying to, you know, bridge this divide of polarities. The, the whole modernist mindset is essentially about assessing dualities and subdividing them further to glean information out of these dualities so the, but the first place this really came to me before I could put language to it like that was I started school back in 2008 and uh, I took up just your basic politics class intro to civics kind of thing my first semester and I was 25 years old I had never voted never thought about voting was completely you could say the absolute opposite of awake I had been partying a lot for the previous years before that and worked at Walmart was my first job and I worked there for three years and generally was not thinking about these things. So when I came into school, that was like, I think one of my, maybe the first hiccups in my, my mode of thinking about how I was of consequence to the world and how I might be needed and stepping into that a little bit. 
So I took the class very seriously, and I was like, okay, well, it's 2008. I should probably get into this whole election mindset and figure out who I'm voting for and, you know, what am I? My parents were conservatives, and, you know, I, I grew up with Rush Limbaugh blaring in the background. So, like, my only idea of politics came from the nasty little quips that my dad had who probably would have loved Donald Trump. And then looking at the liberal side of things and wondering, you know, what's there? Obviously, I really care about people and I don't want to see them hurting. You know, what does it mean to, to kind of enact that in the world? And I went through this back and forth between the extremes of conservatism and liberalism. And I, I started, I guess you can look at it through my first two votes. My very first vote was in the 2008 primaries and I voted for Ron Paul. And I had this idea of being a libertarian. I want people to be free. I want people to have the ability to make their own decisions in life and not be told how they should be and how they should act and what's good for them. Like, I, I don't like this whole idea. And it didn't take me but maybe two months after that to realize, like, but yeah, but in order to do that, we really need each other. Like, we have to take care of one another. We have to, we have to be here in such a way that, that, you know, we're allowed to have the room to make those choices for ourselves. So I became a, an avowed socialist and ended up working for the Obama campaign um, in 2008 and went to the DNC and volunteered. I rolled up all of the little American flags and put them in bags that everybody waved at the DNC um, in Denver. And, and then after, after that election, watching Obama for five months after the election, I was already, by the time he was being sworn into office, I was already disenchanted. And I was like, this still isn't enough. This, like, polarity really doesn't feel like it gets the whole picture. And I started examining other economic systems, other ways of thinking, and I guess I got into anarchist communism because I, I started looking up terms that fulfilled both things, and I came across the term libertarian socialism, which is what famously Noam Chomsky describes himself as. And I started looking into, like, what does it look like to try to accomplish both of these things? To give people total liberty and to also recognize that we need each other. So in that examination, I kind of came to anarchism and started studying these different ways of essentially communalism, finding ways to have liberated communities. And I started digging more into anthropology at the time, and that started backing up my, my thoughts about um, the fact that we needed to have smaller units of political decision-making that were based around consensus and respect. And anarchism tends towards that kind of model, model of thinking. And of course, like one of the probably most famous mainstream anarchists of our day is David Graeber, who is, of course, an anthropologist, because I think when you, when you study human societies besides the one that we're embedded in, you start to learn very quickly that to have strong social relationships and societies that can last for thousands of years, you need to enact these kinds of small-scale communal gift societies. And I guess that's what brought me into Charles Eisenstein and, and his work was recognizing that all of the small-scale cultures that I appreciated and seemed to be working. That was a big thing for me. I, I was a big functionalist. Like, oh, thing, these things seem, seem to work, and what we're doing seems to not work. What can we learn from it? Is that all of these societies, they don't work by barter. That's, a, that's an old myth about how, how the societies before us work. It's the economist fallacy, where the economist imagines that everything is about tit-for-tat exchange. So anybody who didn't have money must have been bartering directly for the things that they needed. It's not possible that they could have had such strong social relationships that they had the ability to give freely to one another, knowing that the power of their social bonds would demand that they have something returned to them at some point. So, yeah, I guess that's how I ended up in anarchism as a sphere of thought and kind of what anarchism is. To me, the depths of anarchism are small-scale gift societies and, at best, confederacies of small-scale gift societies attempting to work together to ensure that each one has the ability to do what it's doing. I'd like you to talk a little bit more about the gift. Charles Eisenstein's uh, Sacred Economics was my introduction to that, and I've spoken to some people and seen some people that have done some some experiments in living in the gift, but 
First of all, I guess just define it a little bit more clearly for our listeners and then maybe share some examples of how you've lived in the gift. So I would say the gift, more than anything else, and I think the gift is often approached from an exchange mindset that I have particular gifts and talents that I need to give to the world and I need to find some way to loosely quantify those things without using money in order to make sure that they show up and that I get my needs met. And I like to look at it from another perspective, which is that the gift is the natural expression of ecosystemic thinking. It is the recognition that community happens when we need each other, not when we find ways to equalize our exchange, but when we need one another directly. And the best expression of that is, I only have myself to give, and I have the whole entire world to give to. So everywhere that I go, I will give of myself, knowing that the rest of the world is coming from the same vantage point, that they have only themselves to give, and they have a whole world to give to. And I'll be held by the nature of this integral system. And it, it requires a certain element of faith to, to make that jump. But not faith, I think, in the blind sense, but, but faith in the sense that you don't get to control the process. And this whole society that we currently live in, the money society, particularly the post-agricultural society, centers around being able to control the ability to gain security in the world. And the gift is the... I guess the counterpoint to that, that look around before we decided that we needed to be secure, the whole world had the security of being alive. And the process of being alive, when you really look at it, is a free exchange of, of energy. So, so I kind of look at the gift from, from that angle. And as far as living in the gift, my, my time spent going around the, the country, I guess back in 2012, uh, I went on a journey kind of took, took the idea of the gift and ran with it as my first real experiment in letting go was deciding to travel around the country with a dear friend and saying, I will not exchange my livelihood to be fed. I will trust that the nature of human beings is such that when we see needs and when we see a, when we see a lack of anxiety around those needs, because the person is also willing to give, that we want to meet those needs. And I traveled around the country for about a year and a half without working, without exchanging for money, without begging, and was taken care of by people across this country who I spontaneously met and saw my place of need and saw me for my gifts and saw my friend for her gifts, even if they didn't know what they were, saw that we were willing to give and took us into their homes and their lives and fed us and clothed us and brought us into their communities. So yeah, that that was my, my probably my initiation in the gift, my baptism. And I guess it's kind of culminated in my, my time here at Seppi's Place, which was an attempt to create a gift economy-centered household that kind of promoted not just the notion, but the ritualization of the, the gift as the center of community life by offering the use of the space as a gift to people who would come and be part of this community. So is there anything that surprised you about living in the gift for that period of time that you did? My immediate response is I, I, I would probably be better off trying to find something that didn't surprise me. About. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm fascinated by it, but I don't know what it's like and I'm not even sure how to do an experiment. So give me an idea of what it was like for you. What were some of the experiences? I, was, I actually just told this story last night, and I think it's a, it's a good story. Because it was hard. It, like, there were, there were moments that were extremely hard. Like, you'd have $10 to your name because you were hitchhiking. And more often than getting a ride, you'd get 2 bucks from somebody who was passing by where you were. Um, so, funny enough, I'd usually, between cities, we would accumulate a small amount of cash, uh, like 10 or 20 bucks. And I remember specifically once we were in New Orleans. And uh, we had landed with just a few bucks in our pocket and we're sitting in front of Cafe Du Monde on a bench and we we're going to sleep and uh, a cop came over and roused us and was like, hey, you guys can't sleep here. But 
everybody sleeps right over here around the edges of Jackson Square. So if you just want to go find a spot and huddle in, you know, everything's cool. We, we allow it there. So we go in and huddle in there and there's this whole community of performers and diviners and street people and musicians who are, are living on the fringes right here out in the open in, in the dead center of New Orleans. And we go to sleep, wake up the next day, have our day. And the end of the night rolls around and we're like, shit, that was really hard. It's concrete, it's cold, and we're tired, and we don't really have any food, and we don't know what's coming next, and the city's kind of scary. And we go and sit in front of a corner store, and across the street from us, there's some musicians playing, street musicians. And one of them's an accordion player, one of them's a fiddler, and they're playing the most, some of the most beautiful music I've ever heard. And at, at this point, we have just a couple of bucks left. And I go... I say, this is the most beautiful music I've ever heard. I want to give them the money that we have left. And my partner, who is an amazingly trusting person, faithful person, was like, yeah, of course. And I walk over and I, and I put my, my dollar in their thing and I say, you know, if I had $100, I'd give it to you right now. I love everything you're doing. Keep doing it. I go back across the street. I end up going into the corner store with the other dollar and getting something for us. And when I come out, the accordion player has come across the street and is sitting with my, my traveling partner. And as I walk up, she turns around and looks at me and says, hey, these people just invited us over to their house. They've welcomed us to stay as long as we want. And we ended up going and staying at this house for two weeks. And they gave us bikes to bike around town, gave us tours, gave us food, invited us into their life, invited us to, to gatherings that they were having. And it was just one of those moments of really immense gratitude where, where I'd taken the risk of saying, I'm willing to have nothing because I feel called to give. So I'm going to give. And getting a return that was completely unexpected. And, and I never would have thought of because they looked like they were street kids. So I figured they were on the streets too. So there were moments like that over and over again during the trip that just broke down the barriers. And sometimes there were moments where you'd get nothing in return and you'd question everything. Like, why am I living like this? Why would I do this? Why don't I just exchange like everybody else so that I can get my needs met? And then a moment like this would completely shatter all of those, all of those doubts. That's amazing because it opened you up to new relationships and opportunities that you would never have had otherwise. So now you said for about a year and a half, you lived completely in the gift. So what happened after that? And why, why did that change? Well, that actually con was consistent until about three months ago. I got my first job about three months ago. And, and aside from that, I, after we got back from our journey to California, we lived on an organic farm that somebody let us stay in, a, in their intern trailers during the winter while they had no interns. And we, we helped out around the farm, uh, once again, with no preordained arrangement, just help as you will. And they would give us food. And we lived like that for a short while. And then I was gifted a van. And I lived in a van for six months. And once again, I mostly was sustained by the relationships that I found myself in. And but there was definitely something breaking down. Like I, I was, I was, I wasn't finding good avenues for giving my gifts or even identifying my gifts at the time, and um, it became kind of tenuous. And that's when I ended up moving to uh, Washington to this intentional community, which was following Charles Eisenstein's work and was trying to operate in a gift economy environment under the good graces of the woman who had bought the land with these exact intentions. And then I traveled for a couple of months and ended up here at Seppi's Place, which, of course, is a gift economy experiment. So that's what happened. And then something started to change. And I think it centered around a crushed idealism. And, and I don't say this in a negative way. I, I actually look at, at this crushed idealism as one of the more beautiful things that's happened in my life. And it's still just budding right now. But when I say idealism... You know, now it summons in my mind the recognition that the ideal is oftentimes and largely in the ways that we do it, an escape from the present situation, an ability to take the pain of what's present and try to abstract it into something beautiful that you can hold on to to replace the pain so that it might be avoided. And I think what 
what has transpired most recently is the willingness to admit that, one, I don't know what's going on. So I don't have any way to idealize the world. I don't have any way to say, this for sure is the way that we should proceed. And then that's often what idealism centers around is this is for sure how we should proceed. And I guess that uncertainty, that willful uncertainty has created a, a, a large doubt in my head that purity of contact, of trying to, you know, puritanically stay away from everything that's, quote, bad about the world is not necessarily the way that the world changes. And that it's actually by engaging, not just the world, because I don't want to say I'm engaging the world on its terms now, but engaging what's really present. And oftentimes engaging what's really present is engaging that grief we were talking about long enough to not run from it by having a zealous relationship with the thing that triggers your grief. And that's kind of, kind of where I've come to now. I have some bigger, I don't even want to say bigger, I have some, some goals that require me to co-mingle with the world as it is that require money. I, I would love to, to, to find a way to, in this society, you have to have land rights in order for the land to have a right to you. And that's what I want. I want a relationship with the land where I belong to it. And we live in a society where it's the inverse. The land has to belong to you before you can belong to it. So I find that I want to compost the, the system as it stands by using, using it with as much keenly aware ability that I have to recognize the destruction that it's, that it's reaping and carefully utilize it to offer a different set of relationships to the world. So I got a job recently for the first time. It was an extremely enjoyable job. It only lasted two months before I move on to my next adventure. But it was kind of my first stepping out of that role of zealotry and puritanism that had been the hallmark of my life for so long. And it was, I, I use this term again, it was a ritual in not knowing and saying, I don't know what's right. And in fact, I don't want to play the good and evil game anymore because I'm not finding that it really assists anyone. All it does is it keeps me untainted and in a level of superiority that dodges the pain of the fact that the world is not pure and it won't be. And the world wasn't pure for people of, you know, that lived in small scale societies 10,000 years ago before we started operating this way. So trying to get messy for the purpose of finding what good I can in the mess and leveraging it towards the best things that I've learned about what could be if I put my attention in that direction. Yeah, that's interesting what you said about crushed idealism and and the comments you've made about language, the language of better and yeah, supposed to be. And that idealism, I guess, is kind of tied in with sort of the way I've thought about it is the lies that we've been told over the last 40, 50, 60 years in America, you know, get a good job, work 40 hours a week, say 10% of your income. And then when you're 65, you can retire and really enjoy yourself. Well, I work with seniors and uh, low mid to low income seniors, and they are not living a golden life. Uh, many of them are sick, tired. I've talked to several people that like had friends that finally retired and died the day <laughs> the day after <laughs> they retired and so we're sold ideas and ideals about all aspects of life through media through advertising through hollywood uh, one of them that's been particularly poignant for me and is just the ideal of what love and marriage is supposed to look like. You have this idea from the romantic comedy of, you know, falling in love and finding the one and yada, yada. Well, those always end at the moment they realize they love each other. They never go 10 years into the marriage. <laughs> and so having, you know, disappointment with what I thought that should look like and what it really does look like, you know, and now I'm past that and realize, oh, it's a much deeper, richer relationship than what I wanted and thought I should have. And so re, it really is a process of, I don't know, reprogramming is not exactly what I want to say, but it really is a process of learning how to, um, live and process information in, in different ways. And the thing about the ideal and idealism is there is no ideal. I mean, no one's living the ideal. And it tends towards 
religious fundamentalism where if you're not like us, we're going to kill you. You know, and we see that played out all too often in the world right now. And uh, so you saying, you know, you were the zealot and wanted to see things a certain way. And then you realize that that wasn't getting you where you wanted to go. That's part of what I'm, I'm wanting to explore. And, and how do we move forward in that? How do we, how do we reach reform our, our thought processes and our cultural um, experiences around this this way that we can see but we're not living yet fully you know you know what I mean I guess it starts with reimagining our culture reimagining what it what it means to be human and what's really important I'm trying to form this into a question <laughs> <laughs> well I, I think I can run with it a little bit so I, I guess the first thing I want to say one of the tricky things about the ideal and ideas and even imagination is that it's usually very personal and not personal just in the in the experiential sense but personal in the selfish sense in the self-centered sense Mm -hmm. because your ideas live inside of your own personal linguistic psychological reality so when when the world takes the form of ideas solely it actually creates a disconnect with the living relationships that you're embedded in that, that surround you because you can live from a place that's not actually where you're at if you live by ideas and ideals because you're living in the fictional realm of your own mind. And that's one of the things that's been perpetuated by this culture. That's how we end up living in a, a suburban area where we have fences and we spend like all of our time being so closely packed in with each other and yet completely isolated is because we're living in these, um, living in these, in these bubbles and the bubbles aren't just physical economic bubbles. They're, they're psychological bubbles too. They're idea bubbles. This is my idea of life that I'm living inside of this house, um, as opposed to your house. And I'm leveraging the entire environment to be able to provide a lifestyle where I can stay in my ideas of what the world is instead of what the world actually is. And so that's one piece of it. It's interesting because as we've grown in affluence in the West and everyone has their own home and their own garage and they pull into their garage and shut the door and then go into their living rooms and watch TV and very rarely interact with their neighbors, even very next door neighbors, let alone the other people in the block, that disintegration of, of um, relationship and culture that used to be part of it when people didn't have air conditioning or garages or cars, they came home and they sat out on the front porch because it was hot and they ended up talking to their neighbors. So I'm not talking about going back in time to some better world in the past, but there's aspects of that that they had in community where they really did look out for each other and in rural farming communities, the hay wasn't in until all the hay was in from all of the neighbors too. And so finding ways to bring that back into our lives and interact with our neighbors, knowing our neighbors, I think that's a, a really key piece to that, which requires you to interact with other humans, which requires you to maybe deal with some of your own crap <laughs> <laughs> and obstacles because, you know, that's the problem with marriage. You know, you can have a pretty good time living by yourself, but once you have someone else there, there's a mirror there that you realize you're not quite as uh, virtuous and awesome as you thought you were once you see yourself <laughs> interact with somebody else. Oh, yeah. So uh, not, not that this has anything to do with Seppi's Place, but tell me a little bit more about what Seppi's Place is and, and what that experience has been like for you. Trying to pin down what Seppi's Place is has been a six-month journey for those of us inside of Seppi's Place. And while a lot has happened, I don't necessarily know that we've come any closer to pinning it down. And... I would actually say that, that that might be a beautiful thing in and of itself. But I guess to, to know Seppi's place, you have to know Seppi and how this came about. Seppi is one of the most kind-hearted, nurturing, compassionate people I've ever met. And particularly his ability to see the beauty and gift in every single person, no matter how infuriating or triggering or destructive that person is, is the center of how Seppi's place began, because that's brought Seppi to the center of a web of people who yearn for a life different than the one that's here. And 
particularly one of the, his area of focus has been food systems. When he had kids, he, um, he recognized that he wanted his kids to be safe. And he found out that a lot of the stories that were being told about formula being good for kids were inaccurate. But that when he looked into, into like what it required for breastfeeding to happen and the kind of diet that it was required for, for a woman to have to breastfeed and not transmit the heavy metals from the waters that are running through the tap and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, he realized the crises that we're facing. And that set him into, into motion trying to do something differently. And the combination of these two elements, him seeing that the world could be much different than it is, and his desire to nurture relationships created a situation where he wanted to do things differently and he wanted to do it together. And he, Charles Eisenstein lived here and was friends with Seppi. That's how I met Seppi is through Charles Eisenstein. And so he had an influence on the framing of this as part of the gift economy. So I would say more than anything else that this has been an experiment of um, making Seppi's heart a physical place where people can be nurtured and different ideas about the world can be, can be held in a safe space so that people don't feel constrained by the cultural notions that they've been given, especially in suburban central Pennsylvania, which I found this area of Pennsylvania to be a very traditional place, a place that's very um, tuned in to the way things have always been. So, more than the kinds of things that have happened here, this has been about a space opening up for that to be expressed and for people to have a safe spot to come and be heartbroken by the state of the world and the state of themselves and to maybe have some fresh ground to till that heartbreak into and hope that it might have a chance to turn into something that looks like joy and beauty and balance. What are some of the challenges that have come through living in that experiment? <laughs> well, uh, money. When you live in service to a, a world that does not yet know how to recognize service without a monetary price tag to it, the money needed to maintain yourself doesn't necessarily always come through. So, um, Seppi worked a part-time job and has been shoestringing this household along through the experiment. Um, and this is how I ended up getting a job. My first job in five years was I saw how much strain was on Seppi and how much he was hurting and listened to him grieve the possibility of losing his house, the possibility of being unable to take care of his kids as well as he'd like. And I decided that my purity needed to be set aside long enough to help him have space to be able to feel safe enough to give his gift. So finances have certainly been uh, an issue the whole time. And then he's invited me into the house to live here to help this experiment. He, um, another local visionary, Kendra, has been a constant feature here. And she's one of the co-founders of Sethi's Place. And, and she lives a kind of radical gift-oriented lifestyle as well. Uh, and he's held space for, for her being here a lot. And then Scott Mann, who, of course, is the progenitor of the permaculture podcast um, moved in here and you know what happens when you get four people into one space and tight money situations you have a very difficult set of community agreements to come to and to maintain and you have a lot of heartbreak in one place that's trying to be processed that's trying to not be reflected back on all the other members of the community and you have differing visions about the world because we're all stuck in our own ideal bubbles, whether we like it or not, because we don't have, we don't have a, a tradition and a, a story that is common among us. And common not just in like an abstract sense, but common in the way that um, a small-scale society has a mythology and a cosmology that everybody knows exactly and can reference. But we all have our own interior psychological cosmologies. So we have to come to agreements about vision. And then even when we come to agreements about vision, we find that even though we came to agreements, language means different things to each of us. And, well, that's not exactly what I wanted. Well, this is what I thought this was and blah, blah, blah. So that and then, of course, just the difficulties of, like, how do you get shit done? You got a bunch of people here 
spending a lot of time doing a lot of different things and a house still needs tending. There still needs to be thought for the future. There needs to be space made for kids. There's a dog that needs to be fed every morning. There's a house that needs to be swept and vacuumed and everything else. So, And then making space for people who don't live here to come through on a regular basis and like how do you resolve the issues that come with that. So all of those things that come with being in a community and particularly being in a community not on a big piece of land with lots of space, but in a house in the suburbs, surrounded by the vestige of normal everywhere you look. So, yeah, those are, I think, a lot of the challenges that have been here. What are some of the key books or YouTube videos or or people who have helped you form this new vision paradigm of the world? I mean, there have been a few big teachers. I would say Charles Eisenstein has certainly been one of them. And another one who's more recently come into my life that I'm deeply grateful for is a man named Stephen Jenkinson, who I mentioned earlier. And he, a lot of his work focuses on grief. And also particularly on, rather than imagining the world that we want, the world that we crave and long for, deeply understanding who we are, how we got here, and maybe even what what kind of cultural predecessors there were to the non-culture that we live in called civilization. Like, where did it come from? And, and understanding that maybe inside of where it came from is the perspective which allows us to understand the way the world sits as it currently is. And rather than how we can escape from it, how we can rein it in and grieve it. And, oh gosh, David Graeber's book, Debt, was a was an influence, and um, anarchist theorists like uh, Peter Kropotkin and uh, Proudhon and uh, Mikhail Bakunin and several others were influencing members. Murray Bookchin, who I, I consider the godfather of American anarchism, is a huge resource, and his his works are what motivated the, the, the kind of anarchist revolution in Rojava, which is currently happening. But more than more than anything, that like those are all, all the big the big head. But really it's just been being present with the relationships that I'm I'm having in, in the immediate sense. I learn a lot more from the people I've loved and the people that I've I've had a hard time loving than I think I've learned from any of these theoreticians. And I'm starting to find, too, uh, learning a lot from just looking at, the, at the, the natural world, looking at the non-human world and asking how it relates to things and how it actually relates to the world as if the world were not full of things, but the world were full of persons, like that nothing is not a person. Really, really understanding the elemental relationships that this world is made of and viewing that non-human world has probably been a lot more significant in my life than anything else. And I've been tracking that since I was a little kid. I used to used to spend so much time watching ants do what they do. And I think a lot of my social theories really kind of mimic the ant nests that I watched when I was eight years old. So, yeah, it's oftentimes the small things, the little relationships and individual moments with people that are have been more impactful in my life than the big theories. They've just given me a language to talk about it. So what are you what are you up to next? What are you involved in? Well, I've been part of a endeavor for the last year called the Emergence Network, which is kind of I would say it, its major theme is recognizing the poverty in imagining that humans are the sole proprietors of intelligence and asking what kind of activism would we pursue if we imagined or understood or embodied the knowing of the fact that the whole world is alive, that everything has agency, rocks and and trees and rivers and emotions and cultures and all of the different elements of life and, and looking looking at the world as if it has that kind of wisdom to offer us rather than trying to conquer it to meet our small and immediate needs. And I don't, I don't know a lot. (laughs) 
but that's that's the major thing right now. And then I'm I'm moving on to a phase of life where I think I'm going to be returning to school. Um, I have an associate's degree, and uh, I've kind of always dreamed of having a having a big boy degree. And I think it would serve the next next parts of my life as I try to further elaborate the the things that the world is teaching me. That idea of interacting and learning from non-human entities is something that's very interesting. I've heard several different people talk about it and feel like I'm beginning to have some of those deeper relationships with plants that I've been learning about and befriending in my own garden as it grows. And uh, I'm in the middle of a book right now called Braiding Sweetgrass, um, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. It's by Robin Walker. I'm sorry, mm. Robin Wall Kimmerer. She's a Native American who is also a scientist and just really goes into detail about that because she understands both sides of the the different ways of thinking and is is really integrating them. And so um, having relationships with the plants and before harvesting, asking the plant if it's if it's ready to to give or not, and uh, and just the way she shared about how her tribe has interacted with with plants and with the land over the you know over the centuries and one of the key things of their tribe is the maple trees and, and maple syrup and all of the things that relationships with maples and it's just a really different paradigm to consider the health of the maples as part of how you govern your human society and i mean it's one of the key things that we have to figure out how to reintegrate because we've ignored the, the ecosystem's that support life on the planet for too long and we just it's going to have to change or or else you know this has turned out to be a lot about personal uh you know development stuff and there's something you said the other day uh when we were talking about fear and excitement because this really is a lot about facing fears and moving through those things and taking new actions so can you share with me a little bit about what you were talking about about fear and excitement yeah, and I, I actually don't remember where I picked this up because I, I heard this at some point, but um, it, w- it was essentially um, noticing that the body feeling, the like somatic experience of fear and excitement are essentially the same thing, that they, they come from the same place. It's, it's a, a sense of anticipation of being right, right on the edge of something being born that is novel and either novel in a, in a direction that brings about the sense of uncertainty that, that comes with fear. This could be something that I dislike or the sense of excitement, which is this could be something I like. And recognizing that normally what drives us towards imagining one or the other is the stories that we walk into the sense of anticipation with. So when the sense of anticipation arises, we essentially have the opportunity to buy into the story that the fear is operating under or buy into the story that the excitement is operating under or staying neutral and allowing both of those stories to have a space, a space in us. And I think that's oftentimes what gives us the opportunity for courage is to be able to say, this is something that is engaging me and my stories in this deep, fearful way, but it holds so much potential in the risk of facing that fear. And then saying, I have the opportunity to have the courage to meet it and find out which one it is. And to find out if the fear has earned its keep, as Stephen Jenkinson would say, in in its story. And if that story really deserves to continue surviving, or if this risk that I'm being offered a chance to indulge in is actually an opportunity to know myself more intimately and to perhaps find something beautiful and uh, beneficial. To change the world, we have to change ourselves or be willing to change. Isn't that, that's tough (laughs) and wonderful at the same time. Well, um, thanks so much for taking the time to explore some of these ideas is there anything anything else you want to add uh, before we wrap up the call here? I think you you asked a lot of a lot of great questions, and I got to a lot of express a lot of different things, some uncomfortable memories and comforting nostalgic memories, and some of the challenges that I think are present for most of us in these troubling times. Well, thanks again for your time. I appreciate it, and hopefully we can talk again soon.
Yes, thank you for inviting me. Have a have a beautiful Fourth of July, and may it be our our Independence Day from thinking we're independent. And that was Eric Chisler. I'd like to say that you can find out more about his work at a personal website, but right now he doesn't have one. But you can look up the Emergence Network and find a link to it in the show notes, where you can see more about what he's currently involved in when it comes to building a world based around the gift and emerging ideas. There's a bit of heartbreak for me closing out this conversation and having sat down to edit it because I miss Eric. He was one of my attachments and anchors to Seppi's place, which as a project is changing, and I myself will be moving out of shortly after this episode comes out. It's interesting having made this jump into community and the things that we've learned from it. Myself and Seppi and Eric, though I won't speak for them, know from our conversations that it's had an interesting impact on all of us. Ethan Hughes says that only one in a thousand projects is functioning after ten years, only one in a hundred is still together after five, and only one in ten ever launches. I'm thankful that Seppi's place at least launched, and I know that there's plenty of good things ahead for Seppi and this space, even if the work that we were doing together is changing. One of the things that stands out for me, having visited a number of communities that did work, and also talking with a lot of folks about ones that didn't, is that it really is hard to do this. We're still discovering the tools and skills and lessons to live together closely. Yeah, there are some folks who are naturally adapted to it, and I have some friends who've lived in community more or less their entire adult lives, but for myself and many others, we have this calling to be together, to live in close spaces sharing resources and time and energy with one another. But figuring out how to do that is something we're still working on, something we're still breathing into and living into, which gets more interesting when we try to add things like different economic systems that help to clear the mind and open the heart to live in community rather than just as roommates. I don't know what the future holds for any of us who are interested in these experiments, no more than I know what the future holds for any moment of life. But I know that this work has to continue, and that my next project will be a sister or a brother to what I've learned at Seppi's place, and will continue these connections, and over time build out our networks, so that, hopefully, as I dream, there will be a community house within walking distance of one another throughout the country, so that eventually we could travel coast to coast with just a short walk each day, from one house to the next to the next, learning, living, and being right with the world every step of the way. If you're involved in a community project or there's any way that I can assist you in your work, please feel free to get in touch. Give me a call, 717-827-6266. Email me, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Or if you want to, drop something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next episode is Joel Glansberg's opening address at the Mid-Atlantic Permaculture Convergence. Until the next time, spend each day getting to know your friends and neighbors and create a new community, whether that's within one house, on a street, or if you need to begin virtually, online. While you do that, also take care of Earth, and especially yourself, and each other.